living You don't wanna miss it I was born to get it Ha, <laughs> this sound like theme music Motivation to grind and get you through it Church Unbothered, never losing, check the score Jamel show improving Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times From politics to laugh Every week she shines My word, how I live it You don't wanna miss it I was born to get it Oh, the city of Los Angeles is on fire right now And I don't mean this literally And I have to kind of explain that Because Los Angeles is obviously one of those places that is prone to wildfires but i ain't talking about wildfires this time what i mean is that a lot of my fellow los angeles residents are running hot and thus the word of the week is outrage just give me a second to speak it's the word of the week yeah Last week, leaked recordings of the president of the Los Angeles City Council talking racist in the company of other city council members was released on Reddit. And since then, a national firestorm that runs all the way up to the White House has erupted. Nuri Martinez, who since has resigned from her post, was recorded making derogatory remarks about the young black son of Councilman Mike Bonin. Let's go to the tape. For MLK, for the parade that Herb used to organize, and we need all the council who wanted to join Herb on the float, because he used to do a whole float to be nice. Bonnie would be like, hey, Nuri, are you going to the MLK? Well, Herb invited me out, I'll go. Okay, I'm bringing whatever the kid's name is. I'm like, it's like the oddest thing. It's like black and brown on this float. And then there's this, this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. Este niño has no, he's, they're not Bounties. doing it. Yeah, no, they're not doing The kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the floor, practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm over here trying to parent this kid. I'm like, you can't do that. I said no. So FYI, the phrase Paris Changuito, I hope I said that right, means like a monkey. And I shouldn't have to explain to you why it's very problematic to be calling a little black child a little monkey. But wait, there's more. Nuri Martinez then let it be known how she'd handle this child, this so-called Paris Chenquito. I was like, this kid is a beatdown. Like, let me, let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. Yeah. But wait. There's more. During that same conversation in which Martinez was in the company of council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon and Los Angeles County Federation of Labor President Ron Herrera, Martinez described Bonin, the father of the aforementioned black child, as a little bitch. And that's a direct quote. She also disparaged Jews and Armenians. She called Oaxacans short, dark and tan fails, which means so ugly. FYI, Oaxacans are the indigenous people of Mexico, and there are an estimated 150,000 of them in Los Angeles. District Attorney George Gasson, who ran on a police accountability campaign, didn't take any police union money and was heavily supported by the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter uh, because of his strong beliefs in criminal justice reform. Well, she called him some ugly words, too. She said, quote, fuck that guy. He's with the blacks. Yeah, old girl was on a roll. 
She hit practically every ethnicity on the bingo card. And those in her presence for this conversation, which reportedly took place last October, were just chuckling and kikiing right along, which is why they need to go to. Before she stepped down entirely, Martinez announced she was taking a leave of absence. Now, that announcement was made the day before there was a public city council meeting to be held. And when I tell you the block was hot, Now, like any city council meeting, members of the public are allowed to voice their issues on an open mic right to the people that are supposed to be representing them in government. And this is when shit got real. Take a listen. Fuck you. Fuck De Leon. Fuck Nori and fuck Cedillo. Fuck this whole meeting right here because it's illegitimate. The people are shutting this shit down afterwards. This whole thing is racist. The fact that they had the audacity to sit here in front of the people that they mocked, that they minimized, that they demonized, that they marginalized is unacceptable. The fact that you are trying to continue with business as usual is unacceptable. 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 We are the people and we are the voices who matter in this room right now, not yours. I yield the rest of my time, but fuck this. This entire mess in L.A. is indicative of what is wrong with American politics. And I'm not talking about how the citizens have responded either. In fact, that's actually the good part. And I'll explain that in a moment. The overt and comfortable racism is obviously fucked up. And the fact that this is coming from a Latina woman who was in the presence of other Latinos speaks to how anti-blackness is universal. This is why black people resent being categorized as a person of color, because in the Asian community, Latino community, many other marginalized communities, anti-blackness is tolerated, sometimes encouraged, because it is considered the requirement to advance in a white centered world. The more you distance yourself from us, the better you look and appeal to them. And you know who I mean by them. But the other thing that struck me is how easy it is for politicians to be in those positions and actually hate their constituents and the idea of public service in general. I see a lot of this across the political spectrum. We have far too many people in charge of the ebb and flow of our lives who actually don't even like us. That's why it's so easy for so many of them to legislate cruelty, to go against the will of the people. They do not like us. And while that is angering, it's also sad. It's sad because the Los Angeles City Council makes decisions on a daily basis that impact the lives of millions of people in this city. And when the president of that legislative body has such a dismissive racist attitude toward groups of people that represent hundreds of thousands of people in her jurisdiction, how can anyone in this city expect fair, capable and unbiased leadership? That's why people are pissed off. It was the stark realization right there on recorded audio that they don't matter. This is why I advocate for people to vote and to vote boldly. We don't actually have to accept any of this. But so often we cede our power because we have been foolishly convinced we don't have any. As long as there are no real consequences, then the behavior will continue. As awful as some of these people are, we are sometimes guilty of being their biggest enablers because we allow ourselves to get disengaged or disillusioned about the entire process. The shittiness of politicians is not our fault. The lack of accountability is. So I was more than glad to see so many people here in Los Angeles so 
freaking outrage because maybe it will linger so that the next greasy ass politicians won't try it. Outrage, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. Now, y'all know I love me some writers. And today's guest is a wonderful writer. She's an accomplished fiction novelist who once shunned Hollywood and then was drawn back. And from there, she went on to write and produce for hit TV shows, Empire, Little Fires Everywhere, and When They See Us. She's got a new project coming out on Netflix that is based off her sister's extremely touching memoir, which will star Zoe Saldana and streams on Netflix starting October 21st. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Attica Locke. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, last night, as part of my research for this interview, Attica, I was listening to a talk that you did and it was something you said and I wish I could specifically remember what it was. I should have wrote it down. You were talking about your process in in writing and I realized that writing is trying to answer the question you're afraid to speak out loud. I don't know how that popped in my mind, but it was something genius that you said that like gave me that idea. And I was like, oh my God, that is exactly what writing is because I'm I, as somebody who always wanted to write a fiction novel, I am so compelled and fascinated by your journey. So I I guess I just wanted to start by asking you, what does writing feel like for you? The older I get, the more I feel like the part of my writing life that is about writing books is about spending time with myself. And I'm a pretty neurotic person. and I can have lots of feelings about why a book isn't working, why I can't do it. I have all kinds of, every book I have a new excuse for why it's going to be terrible. But lately I've been like, well, wait a minute now, Attica, you hanging out with your own mind. So are you sure you want to talk about hanging out with yourself like that? So I'm trying to like switch how I, what my internal monologue is about, well, this book is bad. It's not going to be any good. And just look at it as I'm going to show up every day and I'm going to spend time with myself. And at some point I will have to reckon with the word, reckon with the story, make it make something cohesive, but I'm trying to treat it like when I write in a journal, it's it's something similar to what you started with, which is, I know that when I write in a journal, I don't know where I'm starting, but usually some revelation comes about three quarters of the way through. 
I had one happen to me yesterday. And I think when writing a book, I don't always consciously know what I'm writing about, but either a revelation hits me three quarters of the way through the process. Sometimes the book has already been written before I realized what I was trying to work through. That happened with my last book, Heaven My Home. There's one particular thing I didn't realize I was trying to work through about my childhood. It popped into my head after it was done. I'm going to get back to that in a second. But uh, before we go any further, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every guest who appears on the podcast. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Oh, baby, it's ongoing. But I'm going to tell you what, there is such a grace to aging. I would say that sometime around turning 45, I was like, yeah, nah, fuck it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just rolling through this the way I want to do it. And one of the things that both age gives you, but then also you just like learn a few things. I no longer code switch in any way whatsoever. I don't racially code switch. I don't class code switch. I don't code switch about being a mother. I don't code switch about being short. I don't code switch about being a mom. I'm just who I am everywhere I go, period. And that is so incredibly freeing, just so incredibly freeing. And it took time to get there. And it took realizing being bothered wasn't solving that knowing. So maybe you come at things with a kind of personal freedom because that's the only thing you can control. It is amazing how it is directly tied to the aging process. You're unbothered <laughs> because it, maybe it's just that you realize after years of learning, maybe the hard way in some cases that it really doesn't serve you to be so consumed sometimes by the opinions of other people. Some switch is flipped. <laughs> Some switches flipped and I done paid for a lot of this uh, wisdom because I therapy, I done paid good ass money to be in a position to realize worrying about people, worrying about what I'm going to do, worrying about stuff I don't have the full information on is just raising my cortisol levels. It's just frying your neurons for no good reason. It took a long time. Again, I've had help with that. I've had somebody I could talk to on a weekly basis to remind me you're not really doing anything. You're not solving anything by worrying at night about everything. And the thing that my therapist says all the time, when I think about future stuff, I say this to myself all the time. When it's time to make a decision about X, you will have more information than you do now. So don't worry about it tonight. Don't worry about something that's three weeks from now. Don't worry about a what if. Because when the time comes and you're faced with the situation, nine times out of 10, you're going to have more information then than you do now to make the right decision. That is a nugget right there, boy. I tell you, you have a new series. You and your sister have a new series coming out on Netflix. We were discussing this off air before we started recording about uh, how you're, you got a little bit of anxiousness because you have this series that's appearing on, on Netflix called From Scratch that is based off your sister's memoir. And it's a personal story because this is based off your sister's memoir. I think it's great. You write fiction. Your sister's writing a memoir. And is it true that you were the one that convinced her to write this memoir in the first place? What did that look like? It looked like me threatening her. <laughs> she, I told her if she didn't write a book, I would never talk to her ever again. My sister had this incredible love story when she went to study abroad in college where she bumped into a Sicilian chef on the street and they had this mad love affair that changed the course of her life, our family's lives, his family's life. It, it was such an amazing story. And, and my brother-in-law has since passed. And after he died, 
Tembi, who is now a uh, citizen of Italy, who has land in Sicily and who developed this relationship with her mother-in-law, even though they had no shared language. They could kind of meet in the middle with Italian, but her mother-in-law spoke Sicilian and Timby spoke English and they were just trying to figure it out. But they became this kind of second love affair about mother and daughter that was so beautiful and was so about how love is bigger than cultural boundaries. And she would write these emails home from Sicily and she would be telling me about the people in the town and the gossip among the widows and who's fighting over what seats at the church. And then she would also be talking about her journey as a widow and being a single mom. And they were funny and they were touching. They would make me cry. And I said, my God, you have to write a book. And I, it probably was years after I said that before she finally did, but I'm so happy she wrote it down. And the reason why I said it, it was a book I wanted to read. Like I wanted to read what was going on in her mind about all of it. And I wanted to read about Sicily and wanted to read about this love affair. I wanted all of that. And I convinced her to do it. And um, yeah, I'm so happy she did. So what has this process been like working with your sister? And then again, the additional element of working with her on something that's very personal. Working with my sister has been one of the most transformational experiences of my life. I've known that she was my partner in life. That, you know, I got a husband partner, I got a mom, dad partner, but she is one of my partners in life. I didn't know that we could have this other kind of partnership where we have each other's backs so fully and that we could tell a story together and that we, our story sensibilities, they have a center lane, but then there's one lane that's her and her sensibility is one lane that's mine. And they somehow braid it all together to make, I think, a really good show. It was wonderful having her there. You know, she was a part of the writer's room. She was a part of all the pitches. We wrote the pilot together. We wrote the finale together. It was just wonderful to do that. The personal part of it was very hard. And the way we approached it was to one, in the adaptation, the characters have different names, biographical details that are different. I'm actually the younger sister, but somehow in, in the show, I got to be the older one or not. But that was one of the ways that we created a little psychic distance for both of us. Cause we, you know, you have to just at the end of the day, tell a good story that, that has the essence of the book that has all these themes we want, but you can't just lift the book and slap it down. You definitely have to bend it and change it. So changing names, changing biographical details. We also made a pact unspoken to protect each other. So she had my back as a first time showrunner, meaning you, there's some stuff you couldn't quite say to me because she wouldn't go have it. And then I also, as her sister, protected elements of the story that were untouchable for us. They were non-negotiable. This is not being changed, period. We'll bend on a bunch of stuff, but there's some things in this show we're not bending on. And I also protected her in terms of there were days where she could not be on set because it was just too difficult. Days where she didn't really need to be in the writer's room to kind of relive certain really heavy things. And I would just say, tell me the top five things you want me to go into the shooting of this scene with. And I will make sure to communicate that to the director and they'll communicate it to the actors and you don't have to be there. So it was, it was just great. I mean, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I've written five books and I have a child and this is the hardest thing I've ever done. It was two countries, five cities, three languages, when we started shooting, I wasn't vaccinated. Like we were Netflix's first U.S. show to come back after the, the pandemic. And it was just a lot. And, you know, some of our actors didn't speak any English at all. 
it was just wild. But also to know that at any given moment, she and I could look at each other and silently communicate, boy, this is magic, what we're doing. How do we do this? Or, no, nah, something's off here and we got to figure out what it is. Or just to go cry together or go laugh in the trailer together. It was magic. And of course, none of it would exist without her. So it feels funny to say I couldn't have done it without her because it wouldn't exist. But I think she would say the same thing, that it was something that only could have happened with the two of us making this decision to do it together. You've written in Hollywood for a long time. And as you mentioned, you're a very acclaimed fiction writer. So how was the show running experience for you? Oh, baby. <laughs> it is a really hard job. No job that doesn't put somebody on the moon or solve cancer should really be this hard. It's just you're doing the creative. You are creatively galvanizing a room of writers to organize the story, but you're also managerially running a calendar about due dates and things like that. You're managing the writers and the writers' feelings, and you're also dealing with budget and making cuts because you don't have time to shoot that. And you're doing that all through the shooting. It's a holding so many hats, and you're the one person who has to hold every beat of the story all the way through. And even you have to remember People will make a statement about, oh, but this this scene is going to do that. And I said, no, remember, we cut that scene. We don't, we don't have that anymore. Well, real quick, though, I, don't, I hate to cut you off, but for people who are listening yes. who do not know what a showrunner is, whatever show you like out there in, you know, in TV land, there is somebody in charge of sort of everything, how the show runs. So just explain loosely what the job description is for a showrunner. Essentially, the showrunner is a, like what a director is to movies. The showrunner is the last line of defense in everything. We pick the department heads. We pick the costume heads. We approve every costume. We approve every prop. Hire the writers that will gather in a writer's room. Not only do we assign the scripts, assign the outlines and all of that, every script has my little sign on it, signature on it. Like there are lines of dialogue. You know, I didn't write it that I re rewrote a scene or I moved things around. I was the one in charge of the tone of it, the voice of it. And kind of like every beat of it. I mean, of course, along the way, people are ad-libbing great lines. But then it's my job in, in post and editing to say, yeah, keep that ad-lib in. That's, that's, that's actually adding to something. But you know what? This other ad-lib, I knew that it helped the actor do the scene, but it doesn't work for the final product. Or there were scenes that we loved that we, we needed to keep. We just don't have time. So how do you decide which scene stays, which scene goes? All of that comes through the showrunner. They're the final voice kind of in everything. And it is a very hard job. So you were saying that you had to wear so many different hats. Like, how were you able to manage that? Because, again, you're, you're used to writing the material and then that kind of being the end of your job. I mean, there are rewrites and other things. But how did you balance everything? Well, one of the things that I've been lucky about is that I've had really good jobs in TV. And I've had really good bosses in TV. I worked on Empire was my first TV job. Then I worked with Ava DuVernay on When They See Us. And the person who became my mentor was a woman named Liz Tigelar, who was the showrunner for Little Fires Everywhere. And I just so admired how she did her job, not just in terms of how she, I was watching her balance everything, but also I loved that her way of being a leader, she somehow got us to our best selves and to do our best work without ever donning a kind of hierarchical way of being. Somehow I feel like Liz as a showrunner was the same Liz when she was getting coffee for everybody. 
Like somehow she presents with this kind of warmth that makes you want to rise up to what she's doing as opposed to a top down, do stuff how I want. And I'm mad at this and I'm mad at that. It, it was just, it was chill. It was good. It was deep. The conversations in the writer's room were deep. And I think that show, that job laid the groundwork for me to kind of copy what I had seen her do and borrow from what I had seen other, and I've also had all women bosses. <laughs> I've only ever had women bosses and and they're we're better at balancing things anyway i mean just our brains are just better at, at multitasking compartmentalizing holding more stuff and i got to watch some of the best do it and when i was on when they see us ava was in the middle of doing post on wrinkle in time so she was busy doing post while helping us get ready to interview the central park five about this really intense emotional experience so i got to watch people doing it and that that helped what did you learn about yourself throughout the process? I learned to trust myself that in a pinch, when I make a gut decision in a pinch, about 89% of the time is going to be fine. 8% of the time is going to be fucking great. And then there's another, however, I can't do my math right, with two, 3% left that might be trash, but I will survive. It, it's not, we're not going to die. So I really learned how to trust myself. I really learned that in creative situations that are collaborative, like television, that the conflict sometimes is the point. And I didn't get that at first. So at first, if like me and the director weren't seeing it the same way, I'd be like, oh, we're just not getting along. Why, why are we on each other's nerves today? Or me and the producer are seeing something different. Oh, no. Oh, no. Then I was realizing, well, first of all, all of us getting along is not the point. Secondly, it's that conflict that made everything better. I can watch the show now because I actually watched the entire eight hours last weekend with my writers. I invited them over and watched it. And I can look and go, oh, yeah, Lauren Neustadter was right about that. I can look at this and go, and Zinga Stewart, our director, she was right about that. I was wrong about that. There are other things I can go, oh, God, Attica, thank God you fought for that. You were right. I have to say, I love everybody who was on this project. Love, 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 love. But just because we, had moments of tension did not mean we didn't love each other. It didn't mean anybody was hurting anybody's feelings. It's actually the point of art, the dialectic, that kind of pushing back each other is what makes great art. And that's very different than writing a novel, which is just, I'm by myself. I'm only competing with myself. I'm only answering to myself. An editor is very much like, do this note or don't do this note. I'll buy the book. I won't buy the book, but you can do whatever you want to do. When we all have, you know, 200 people on set with crew and we run it out of sunlight and it's however many millions of dollars, you can't just be like, I don't feel like doing that. You got to work through whatever people are, are struggling with. And it has made my show so much better because of that. You had a bit of an unusual foray into Hollywood based off, you know, what I read and what I know of your story is that initially it seemed like, and you obviously can correct me, but it seemed like you were focused first on being a, a movie star. Is that correct? A director. I wanted to be a director. Reality didn't quite hit the way you thought. So what happened in that first initial introduction to trying to get into Hollywood? So I went to Northwestern and I was a film major and I moved to LA afterwards. Uh, my sister was already living here and she is an actor. My now husband was living out here trying to make his way in Hollywood. And so I moved to LA and I thought, Oh, within like six months, I'm going to sell a script and it's just going to be great. And none of that happened. But okay, fine. I, I, I got temporary work. I answered phones wherever this temporary agency sent me. 
I got a job at the WB. I'm aging myself, that old network. And I was in publicity and I went to work on Robert Townsend's sitcom, The Parenthood. I'm further dating myself. And from there, I realized my only way to get where I want to get is to write. And so I, I stopped working for, I remember I saved money in a shoe in my closet. I would save cash every week for my little paycheck and put it in a shoe in my closet because I knew I had to stop working to write. That the only way I would leap out of what I was doing is if I had something to show people about what I could do. And from there, I ended up going to Sundance. I applied to Sundance twice. Uh, I went to their feature filmmakers lab and out of that came a movie deal. I was there with the script. You met producers. I came out of that. There was a movie deal to make this thing. And we were deep in the process. We were beginning to location scout when the studio, and again, more, this doesn't even exist anymore, was USA Films. They decided they didn't want to make the film at all. And the reason that they gave was they were an indie studio and they raised a lot of their money overseas. And there was a narrative in Hollywood that was really difficult to dislodge for years which is that black content doesn't sell overseas, that people overseas are not interested in our lives. It is a lie. It was always a lie. Japan and hip hop, what? Paris and jazz, who? What are you talking about? So that makes no sense. And yet at the time I was 25, I was a baby. I didn't know how much of a baby it was, but I was a baby. And they were saying that they couldn't raise this money to make this film. They couldn't find a way to market the film because the film had black people and white people equally in it. So who's it for? The black people aren't receding behind the white. The white people aren't receding around the back. We, we just in a movie together. Who are we marketing this to? And so what I heard when that fell apart was there's not a business model for who you are, Attica. Because I knew then what is at the core of my voice is this. It is black. There's white people in it. My life is integrated. Like that, that's just what it's going to be. And I got very, very, very scared. I think I was newly married at the time. We were broke. My husband was about to go to law school. He had left his Hollywood dreams behind. He was about to go to law school. And I just went, fuck, <laughs> okay. And I said to myself, well, I know I can write. So they don't want my stories. So what if I do this to live? What if I just write the movies they've already decided they're going to make? And I just offer up my skill set and then I make money. And then I, that's, that's my career, I guess. I did that for over a decade. I worked for every... I don't know that there's a studio I didn't work for in 10 years. Was always working, making good money. Husband, you know, allowed him to go to law school without working. Him, me and Sally Mae or whoever it is now did it together. And then I just went, wait, what? None of that got made either. So then I felt like the joke was on me. You, you, you have sat on your, your actual soul. You have sat on your actual voice for commerce that isn't even going anywhere. I felt like all I did was write to go to meetings. I was also writing for people who don't fundamentally love to read. And I don't mean that as a diss at all to people who work in Hollywood. They got so much stuff they're trying to do. They have to kind of plow through those scripts quickly. And a script is a literary experience in the sense as words on paper, but it is merely a blueprint to the thing it will finally be. So I just felt like I didn't know what the point of what I was, I didn't existential, like, what is the point of all this? Over 30 and where it circles back to from scratch in some way is that my brother-in-law got diagnosed with cancer and he was young. And I went, oh no, we're not always going to be here. Oh no, none of this is guaranteed. So wait a second now, let me really think about what I want to be doing. And I walked away from Hollywood for years. I just said, I, this isn't for me. 
it doesn't want me back in the way that I want it. So I got to get out of here for a minute because I, I, I think I can't do this anymore with the time I have left on the planet. And I walked away. I borrowed some money on my house because it was, it was 2005 and people was taking out equity to go to Hawaii. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'm going to write a book. And I gave myself a year to do it. And that slowly led to getting published. I got a two book deal, second book, third book, published in other countries. Oh, this is what I do now. And my sister, talk about each of us holding each other up. She had said to me at one point, I don't think you're done with Hollywood. Even though I was like, I think I am. She was like, mm, I don't think so. I can't really eat off this completely. I'm not, you know, I've done well in terms of critical acclaim, but I've not really ever been a big bestseller. I was on the New York Times bestseller list for six days and 42 seconds. Like it was like nothing. And, and none of that comes with a pool. I didn't, we could do another, remember when TLC did their whole breakdown on the economics of an album? Somebody needs to break down publishing because you do it for love. But anyway, and so yes, I then realized I had to figure out a way to make some more money. I didn't know what to do. I got a speaking agent and that didn't, that didn't add any real money. I thought about teaching. I actually did some interviews, but I don't know how to teach anything. Teaching is a vocation and a calling. And I never wanted to be like, I'm just sliding in here to do this to make some pad out my income. I didn't want to do that. So I didn't do it. And then I went back to my Hollywood agency and I said, Hey guys, remember me? Because <laughs> what had happened during the time I was off writing books is that the very thing I was trying to do in movies, deep character work and stories, sociopolitical themes, grown up storylines and themes, all of that had moved to TV. And once I realized that that was happening, I was like, well, I want to play now. I, I, maybe I could do that. And so I went back to them and I talked about an idea that I had. And they're like, okay, that's really great. That's really great. It's going to be kind of difficult because it's, well, it's black. And they're like, it's also period, but, but it's black. And I said, oh, okay, well, then just send me scripts of stuff that's out there. And then Empire came around and the rest is kind of history. I had this weird circular thing, but I only could have done Empire. I only could be where I am today because I gave myself the gift to walk away and get my voice back because I had put it in a drawer. I had said, nobody wants it. I claimed it back on paper in terms of novels while aging. And then along the way, I got very like, well, this is what I have to give and I'm not going to really apologize for it. And I was lucky that Lee Daniels and Danny Strong and Eileen Chaikin kind of appreciated the fact that I had this weird circuitous route. And I was benefited by the fact that Danny Strong and Lee Daniels didn't know a lot about TV either. So they were like, we're not following any rules. So, okay, go ahead. You've never done a show before. Come on. And it, it changed the course of my life. So much more I want to ask you about Empire in particular. But we are going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Attica Lock. A great writer's name, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My guest, Attica Locke, is from Texas, which is the only other state I lived in growing up besides Detroit. And I got a story to tell about that brief time I spent as a Texan, which happens to be the first time I felt like I encountered racism. When I was six years old, my mother and I moved to Houston, Texas to join my stepfather, James, who had recently finished his computer engineering certification in Detroit. But he left the city for Texas because he could not find work in Detroit, which was going through one of those periods where they had historically high unemployment. My stepfather had been in Texas for a year before my mother and I moved down there. It took a little time before he was hired in his field. And before he was hired working in computers, he actually worked at a gas station. We lived in a rat infested motel for months before things finally kind of turned around. In fact, the rats were so bad, my mother had to sleep with a rat pistol. Anyway, eventually we moved up the ladder and moved into a nice cozy suburb. But registering for school proved to be a little bit more difficult than my stepfather and mother anticipated through no fault of their own. I was entering second grade and I just felt this energy like the teacher whose class I was assigned to didn't like me. And that's a very foreign energy to feel when you're six or seven years old. My teacher was white, which wasn't an anomaly because my kindergarten teacher in Detroit also was white, Mrs. Gold. And I absolutely adored that woman. But this second grade teacher, the prequel of Karen, had a completely different disposition. And when I got my first report card, I had mostly low grades, a whole lot of D's. Now, that was never my testimony. I was far from a dumb kid. I was among the top of my class before I came to Texas and always had been considered an advanced student. But when my mother questioned prequel Karen about my grades, the teacher said I couldn't read like at all, which was a total lie. She also made it known that she thought I should be put back a grade and she questioned Detroit's educational system overall. Now, I know Detroit ain't exactly the Bel Air Academy, but it was obvious that she was putting two and two together to make a racist ass for little black girl from Detroit coming to Texas. She can't keep up. My mother wasn't having that shit. She tagged in my stepfather and then they went to work on her and whatever school administrator was her boss. They took turns cussing them out. The end result was that I stayed in second grade and me and prequel Karen figured out a way to stay out of each other's way. And my grades magically turned because she got off that bullshit. Thank God I was only in that school system for a year. And when it was finally time to go, trust me, I was happy to take my allegedly non-reading ass back to Detroit. And now back to more with Attica Lock. So we were talking about Empire before the break, and I think it's so ironic that wound up being your vessel back into TV, knowing the type of writer that you are, because, you know, Empire is dramatic, it's over the top, it's all of this. So thinking about the things you'd like to write about, did that irony strike you as well? Like, but I like to write about, you know, social political things, and here I am writing Cookie Lion. (laughs) (laughs) It did and didn't. And, and, you know, I, I think I'm probably not the first person who would say that season one of Empire was its apex, that that's where it was at its absolute best. And when we went into season one, 
we didn't exist in the world. Everything was written and shot before it aired. I think there was like one, there's some editing left to do, but basically we wrote that in a bubble with no clue what anybody would say about any of this. All we knew was that we were saying to ourselves, you know what? I would watch the hell out of this show. But, but we didn't know how people were going to respond. So if you look back at the early stuff, I think you see glimpses of a direction I probably wish the show would have stayed in, which is where we did touch on sociopolitical issues. And for me in particular, I remember in my interviews, I told them I was really interested in looking at what happens to a family without a tradition of generational wealth that is suddenly wealthy. Like, what does that look like? And so that was an area that I was interested in. And then I also have a soapy, crazy, I mean, I pitched some wild stuff in that room, you know, and so I also have that side of me too. So it was really fun. It was expansive. The bigger challenge for me to, to understand was writing with a group, like more than the subject matter. When we showed up on the first day, my first TV job, I was like, there's like 11 of us in here. How does this even work? And then as we started talking and, and pitching and thinking of themes and the stories we wanted to tell, what happens, which is what happens on every show, if you are lucky, is this dialogue becomes symphonic. And so somebody got a trombone in here. Oh, and then I heard a symbol, I heard a little flute, I heard a little something. And all of a sudden we together create a sound that none of us could have done alone. And that that is the grace of writing for TV that you don't get with a novel. What you get with a novel is you just get my whole blood, you get all of it, but you also get whatever limits I have as a writer that I'm aware of or I'm not aware of. The idea with television is it's adding so many different elements and layers when all these voices stack on top of each other. And it can be extraordinarily rewarding and fulfilling and exciting to watch it happen. What do you think Empire's legacy will be as a television show? Because, I mean, it really changed some dynamics in TV. I don't hear people talking about the show as much, but literally turn on TV, Empire. And now, my God, we got the shy, we had Insecure, all this stuff all over the place with, with movies and everything. I think it really took that narrative that I started this whole conversation with about my career, this narrative that nobody cares about Black content, that nobody cares about it overseas. And, and Empire did not explain itself. It had no appreciation for the white gays. It just, just join us or don't join us. And it was a hit with white folks. You were right. In fact, that was a big part of our audience. I remember th the night of the, it was either the premiere or the night of the second episode airing, somebody told me that Fox thought that they were going to do like a 1.7. They had these low, low, low expectations. We just blew it out of the water. Who knew? And it took something like that. And of course, Shonda had laid the groundwork for some of this as well. I think for Shonda, her work was able to get in and it was, I don't want to use the word like palatable because her work is fantastic. That's part of why she was irreproachable. It was just too successful. It was too good. It was also ensemble with lots of uh, colors, lots of other colors where it was, here was just some straight up black stuff where they talking straight up black and all of this. And it did wonderfully. So she laid some groundwork. And then hopefully I believe that Empire laid the groundwork for a lot of the television that we're seeing now. Yeah, it, it was wild that it was so like in your face with blackness and, and no apologies. And uh, I'd say that to people all the time is that you write something good, you write something that entertains people, they will learn to like it. Like they will want to join the party. So you don't have to write to cater. You know what I'm saying? Like you write 
whatever is is the true story. I find it interesting with you that like you clearly have like such a great and terrific sense as a writer, but you also like crime. So how, <laughs> how does the murder meet the writer? Like, I'm figure this out. Because all of your novels are like, a murder is right at the center of it. Yeah. So how did that interest in true crime develop? I've always kind of been like that. Even as a kid, there's like this kid's mystery book called The Westing Game that was like my favorite book as a kid. And it was solving a, a mystery. And I just, I was so drawn in by the titillation and the drops of information that you had to put together. I was just really into it. And then the older I've gotten, I can be philosophical and then I can just be base. The base me is I'm watching every dateline, dead woman in a ditch. I threw them in the back of my trunk and the ax and I'm going to try and go dig up the football field at the high school and bury them. Because I'm fascinated by how the how do you think you're getting away with this? And why are you doing it? That that stuff fascinates me. More so than like serial killer. Because serial killer feels like something was always kind of genetically off about you. Something was always uh, medically, chemically off. As opposed to people who just snap and then do crazy stuff. But philosophically, I will say that... One of the things that I'm interested in when I write about crime fiction is that I have a theory that the exploration of crime and fiction is, for me, it is to challenge the idea of scarcity in the world. Because the idea for me of crime is an illusion of scarcity. There's not enough money, so I'm going to take some. There's not enough land, so I'm getting yours. There's not enough love, so I'm taking you out. There's not enough food. There's not enough drug, whatever it is, there's not enough. When I actually believe the earth to be infinitely more abundant than we give it credit for, I think our public policies give the illusion of scarcity. And I think when people's backs are up against the wall and they feel like I don't got and nobody is taking care of me, you lash out and you act out. And I think the best crime fiction that looks at the ramifications of making that choice how that reverberates out, how it doesn't ultimately solve the thing you thought it was going to solve. And then with my books, I'm always trying to say, okay, there's that first person that lashed out. But when you dig and you dig and dig, you know what? There's always a bigger crime. And that shit is almost always having to do with politics and capitalism. There's always a bigger crime that is the little crime. It's just the door cracking open to the larger crimes of you know, my first book, Blackwater Rising, the, the coal oil industries was a sketch on Enron. It's always these big corporations and, and the ways in which they can get away with stuff because of politicians that show them favor. Those are the bigger crimes. And what just happened with this judge talking about a special master. And where did they get that name special master? I don't want no master in my politics. Can we just not, I don't want no master in there. But, that, you know, she, she had trouble points. So that, that to me, that's a little crime in there. You can't, you know, come on. So I have both the high and low of it. Like I am fascinated by people's behavior on in a personal level, what makes them resort to violence. But I also think that writing all of these things out in books, I hope it does two things. I hope it invites a look at that choice of acting on violence. It's almost never the right one. It never gets you what you want. It hurts circles and circles of people. But also you might've gotten to that crime because you didn't realize that you're a victim of a larger crime in a society that doesn't really have a safety net. When honestly, if we redirected some spending, if we did this and that, we could all have a lot. Yeah, I mean, I tell people this about capitalism frequently is that, you know, for capitalism to actually work, somebody has to be exploited. 
Like it has to be an underclass. That's the only way it functions. And to your point about scarcity, when we thought about it, I mean, the fact is we have people in this country who are hungry, but we know every night restaurants, fast food places throw out massive amounts of food. They're not allowed to give it away. And that to me says a lot about the type of society that we are in is that, oh, we know we have it. It's just, you can't have it. It's like, oh, oh, that's interesting. And based off who can't have it, often has to do with race, class, gender, yeah, all of those things. Uh, you said something in an interview that so explained where I am, but I'm glad you said it because like, nah, I know I'm not crazy. You said in an interview that, uh, I think it was last year when you said this, is that you don't know how to meet Trump supporters where they are. I do not either. Have you figured that shit out yet? So you can tell me. I don't know where I just, I just don't. I'm like, to me, they're just a lost cause. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because it's, no, because they got crazier. It's 2022. It, we, but when I probably, when I said that, okay, well, I'm trying to think he's done so many things, but I'm trying to think. It was actually, when you said this, it was right after the insurrection. Yeah. So essentially, <laughs> if you don't got through the insurrection, if you don't got through them documents, laid out on the floor. No, 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 no. We can't. We can't. I possibly can with people who say, "Woo, I kind of went crazy for about a four years and gave my support to this idiot. And I'm really fucking sorry. We could probably talk. Like if you recognize I played a part in something awful by helping this person get elected awful for our country. But if you brought rolling with Trump in 2022, nah, uh uh-uh. uh, I can't. I don't want to because you also scare me. Because I I don't know that we're seeing the same reality. So I'm a little bit afraid to stand in line at the grocery store next to somebody green isn't green, and purple isn't purple. You seeing something totally different from me? So I don't think we have a way together. And I wish more media would make a big deal that about the fact it's so easy to point a camera at them. And have them say all oh, their crazy Joe Biden and alive and JFK Jr. is actually a secretary of state. Whatever the hell they say. It's kind of funny to like, you know, put that on and go, oh, I'm not like that. It reminds me of like what northerners used to feel about, but southerners back in the 50s and 60s. And they think all day down there and they overall spit in tobacco talking about the Negroes and all that. And I'm not like that. It's kind of fun to watch these Trump people sound crazy. But there's not as many of them as all that makes it seem. When you keep doing that, you keep giving them oxygen and there's not that many of them. It's not as many as we think it is. I don't know, though, because maybe not as extreme, but the fact that we have people in our legislatures who are openly on the same tip and who have gotten elected, not in spite of, but because of that, that it it may not be a massive amount. They may not have the numbers, to your point. But the way that it has infected the country, it's going to take us a whole generation and then some to get from up under this. It is like the the consequences of the 2016 election of electing Donald Trump. Yeah. Forever has changed our politics to the point where I don't know if we could get back Mm -hmm. to just arguing over policy. Like, I don't I don't know. We can get back to that. I have not done this kind of level of analysis. It is a gut feeling. I still think the ones that are getting in, all I know is you would not be trying these voting rights laws to desecrate, to diminish. You would not be trying to gerrymander if you weren't needing to cheat. 
I think you need to gerrymander. You need to make sure somebody's license don't look right to vote because you don't have the numbers. Now, of course, I'm just saying that on a gut feeling, I am not a political scientist. I've not done any, any analysis on this, but my common sense is like, why are you needing to do all that? Unless you realize your numbers are going down, but you are correct that no matter what, there is a level of insanity that we have invited in, in terms of what's allowable discourse. Why did it take the media so long to say the word lie? He's lying. Why did it take the media so long to say that's racist? He's racist. I'm glad we're here now, but, but you are right. It's going to take a lot to kind of, I don't know. I don't think there's a go back. There's a go forward to whatever this new thing is. And I hope it's with an indictment for him. And I hope we can survive the acting out that will come on the other side of that indictment, the domestic terrorism. The media is still very guilty of being complicit in all of this because, and it drives me crazy as a career journalist, that we still won't call a thing a thing. And this idea that we have to both sides dumb shit is just going to literally drive me insane. And it's embarrassing as a journalist to see people normalize total crazy to normalize lies like stop putting these trump supporting liars on television stop putting them on tv like if they can't say that the election wasn't fairly decided they don't need to be on television yeah exactly they do not need to have a platform they should not be allowed in any of these spaces where we discuss serious issues because that's a lie yeah and they're basing their career on a lie and so when you're doing that you're saying that they have a point yeah and that's why people you have a faction of people who still believe this part of the reason is that is because the media is very complicit. I mean, even what we just saw recently with Joe Biden's speech mm-hmm. to frame that as hate speech is wild insanity. Yes, it's wild. And the media was very complicit in trying to both sides it and try to make it seem like it's just as bad as when Donald Trump was at his rallies. Call him. No, 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 no. It's not just as bad. It's not even close. OK. And what's worse is a lot of them MFs know it. Yeah. Them, Lindsey Rams, Ted, they know they, they're engaging in cosplay and they are riling up a base to keep fanning the flames, breeding within their base, saying crazy shit. When they know that election wasn't stolen, they know. Yeah, they do. They know it. And it's, it's political theater for them that are costing people lives. Yes. Pivoting a bit, I want to make sure that I ask you about uh, your husband, who I find it hilarious that you have described him as super white. (laughs) 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 So obviously, given what you you write about, because you do, you know, you, you write, I hesitate to call it crime fiction, because you add so many great layers, especially when it comes to social and political economical themes, given where your sensibilities are, how does this work in a interracial marriage? I'm very curious. <laughs> it just does because my husband makes me look like uh, Mitt Romney. He is so left, is wild. I mean, so my bigger fear with my work when I started writing the, the Darren Matthews Highway 59 series was that I was writing a cop. I thought he would hate it because he's a public defender. I thought he would just hate the books because they, it was a cop. I was so nervous to give it to him. So that that is probably a bigger, was a source of kind of like tension or odd stuff around my work. I think as, as parents and as a couple, we've always been incredibly frank about race and irreverent about race. I mean, one of my favorite jokes in the house when I'm asking for a glass of water is reparations begin at home. So yes, I would like a glass of water right now. 
<laughs> and so we, we, we tell jokes and we do, and then, and then it also can get serious. And in the raising of our child, there have been times where I've honestly said, my husband is on the right side of every political issue that I know and understand. But because he's a white guy, there are times when I wanted to say to him, I have said to him, it's been difficult conversations. I worry that you are raising our biracial daughter with a privilege that she doesn't actually have. There are ways that you walk through the world as a six foot white dude. I've seen him show up at a screening with no invitation and just be in a suit and just get in. I mean, it's like, it's like a, you, they can do anything, put on a suit, be six feet, be white. You can just get in the room. So he walks through life with a kind of anti-authority kind of pose. And that's who he is as a public defender. And I do love every the way that he's raising her in terms of standing up for her rights and all of this kind of stuff. But it subtly gets in sometimes that you, you are expressing to her, I have to come in and do a little of the cleanup on what it is to be a black woman in a black woman's body and make sure that she understands that too. So it's like this weird mix of, I want her to be free and I want her to have the things that she should have. She shouldn't be able to act like him, but you can't totally. What does it mean for you to be a black Texan? Because you said something interesting about Texas because you're originally from there, from Houston, that you love Texas, even though it doesn't necessarily love you back. Like, what does that, what does it mean for you to be a black Texan? When I think about Texas, I think about my ancestors. I think about rural East Texas. I think of dirt roads. I think of my grandmother, grandmothers, my great grandmothers. I think of them farming, going back to reconstruction. I think of them founding Freedmen's towns. I think of them founding colored elementary schools. I think of my dad's grandfather who had a fifth grade education who sent six kids to graduate school. There is a Texasy spirit in there, which is I got the balls to believe I can pull all this off. And also, I'm not going to be run out of here. And I am always careful about talking about it because I never want to fault people who fled during the Great Migration. I, I, baby, bye. I get that. Flee. Flee and get out of this. My people chose not to do that. They simply chose to say, nah, we somehow scratched out a little piece of land and we're going to stay. We'll do whatever we need to do to defend it. And then when the time comes to march to make it better. So I think of a kind of stick to I think of a fortitude. I think of a self-regard in terms of what I'm capable of. I think of a friendliness. I think of the raw physical beauty of the place. I think of barbecue. I think of Juneteenth. So when I think about Texas, I think of warmth and pride. On the other side of that is Greg Abbott's house <laughs> and everything he's doing. And I can't stand it. I can't not stand him. He's, he's a t- between him and Ted Cruz. I'm like, dog, Texas, y'all deserve better. Oh, my God, y'all deserve better. Yeah. Anyway, that's how I feel about being a black Texan. And I don't know that anything could fully take that away from me uh, because I simply won't let what is happening in that state politically undo my family's legacy. I can hold the contradiction that there's some things happening there that I abhor in terms of trans rights, in terms of women's reproductive health, in terms of shipping people from the border up to Chicago, New York, whatever the hell he's doing. I can hold my disdain for that while also loving the legacy of my ancestors. Well, Attica, we have reached the point in the interview where the controversy actually begins, believe it or not. <laughs> it, it, it is a game I play with every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and it is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. Okay. And you must pick one. 
All right. So this is where folks always get in trouble. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. First up, West Oaks Mall or the Galleria? Shit. <laughs> That's a very Houston-specific question. I'm going West Oaks. I'm going West Oaks. Parking is better. Speaking of Houston, uh, I actually lived in Houston for a year growing up. My mother and stepfather moved down there, so I lived there for a year. I mean, I've been to Houston a bunch of times. I l- absolutely love Frenchies. Like, Frenchies is like... <laughs> Yes, I love Frenchies and I also love the Breakfast Club too. But Frenchies is a fried chicken spot. Every time I go to Houston, I must go to Frenchies. <laughs> it's fried chicken, but the greens are slamming. Yes, it is. that's very true. And the dirty rice too. The dirty rice is off the hook. Yeah. Since we're talking about food, the next question is Tex-Mex or the Mexican food here in Cali, the Cali Mexican. Baby, Tex-Mex all the way. <laughs> Tex-Mex all the way. Your dad's brisket or his ribs? Brisket. 100% brisket. That brisket must be hidden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brisket 100%. Warmth of other sons or cast? Warmth of other sons. And finally, I know this is going to be like asking you to pick between your favorite kids or whatnot. Your two wonderful characters, Darren Matthews or Jay Porter? Jay Porter. Jay Porter? Jay Porter because I became a novelist with Jay. And Jay has always been a sketch of my father. Mm. So, Jay Porter. We birthed each other. Like, I made him up at the same time as I was making myself up as a novelist. So, Jay. And you center Black men in a, in a very specific way. And you write them so well. Is that how your father shows up in your writing a lot of times? I think it has more to do with the fact that I see myself as Black before I see myself as a woman. So that when I want to say some things about what it is to be black in the world, either I'm just not good at intersectionality or I'm making a choice that I don't choose to do that right now. Specifically, you know, Jay, again, a sketch of my dad that just came to me, you know, as he is. And and Jay's psyche, as much as he's a black man, like it's very much my psyche, my lens on the world. But with Dare, when I knew I wanted to write about a black Texas Ranger, the, the numbers game of the Rangers is such that you would be telling a very different story if you were trying to tell a story about a black female Texas jury. There's only like 150 of them. And of that, like 150 Rangers, like 12 are Latino, seven or eight are black. And it's like three women. So, and I don't think there is one black woman. So you would be telling a very different story where I couldn't just center what it meant to be black in that role. Because I would have to fold in gender, which again, may be a fault of my own inability to hold what it would be like to write that. Cause there's something interesting about writing about a black female Texas Ranger. I would also be writing in something about a unicorn. And I guess it felt easier to approach it this way. Okay. That makes sense. Well, you have survived the controversial portion of this interview. <laughs> uh, Attica, I just want to thank you for spending the time that you've spent with me. I so love your writing. Thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much. Especially black women who are fiction writers, of course, um, are, are after my own heart. But your your novels are really, really amazing. Of course, I loved everything that you have done in the TV space, but your novels were, were what hooked me. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, for sure. They are my heart. So that means a lot to me. Thank you. So it, I appreciate you and looking forward to see you doing more show running, even though it will drive you crazy. <laughs> 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 Apparently so. Attica is getting out of here Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My good sis Lizzo always has people coming for her and fuck it, I'm bothered. The latest is Kanye West and we've officially reached the point where I don't care about calling him his government name anymore, which is now yay, but I don't give a damn. He's whatever I tend to call him. Lizzo bothers people black and white for a lot of reasons, which I'll get into in just a moment. But during that fucked up sit down that Kanye did with Tucker Carlson recently, he wanted to make sure he checked off every last item on the boot licking checklist. And so he summoned the name of Lizzo and said the media is at fault for her feeling good about being a plus size, voluptuous, beautiful black woman. On Instagram, they attack her for losing weight because the media wants to put out a perception that being overweight is the new goal when it's actually unhealthy. Let's get aside the fact of whether it's fashion and vogue, which it's not, or if someone thinks it's attractive to each his own. It's actually clinically unhealthy. Yeah, so fuck him. Now, this is not the first time somebody has decided to make Lizzo's business their own. Aerie Spears, fitness guru Jillian Michaels, conservatives who were about to pass the fuck out because she played a 200-year-old flute that was lent to her by the Library of Congress. Meanwhile, Lizzo is wondering, as am I, why are y'all minding the business that doesn't concern you? Everybody in America got my motherfucking name in their motherfucking mouth for no motherfucking reason. what it is that bothers people about Lizzo. I mean, what really, really bothers them. They are bothered by the fact that she is so unbothered, pun intended, by everybody else's limited expectations and vision of who she's supposed to be. A lot of people want Lizzo to be unhappy. No, seriously, because of her size, they want Lizzo to be depressed, not feeling good about herself and full of shame. They want her to internalize their disgust and sometimes hatred toward people who look like her. They want her to feel repulsed and angry. And she just doesn't. So every time they see her loving her own body, every time they see her proud of her stretch marks, every time they see her using her incredible talent to uplift people, to make people happy, every time they see her twerking, every time they see her laughing, every time they see a man loving on her, it just makes them hot as fish grease. Stay mad and keep those salty tears flowing. I love to see it. 
As for me and my house, and I'm sure Lizzo's too, stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7'5 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it.